So let me just pick up this chapter 4 at verse 16, and I'll read down through oh, verse 42 today. 42. We already looked at the first portion last week. I'll start at verse 16, go down to verse 42. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. When Jesus uses the word the Father, it's His way of saying God. To worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see, a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his word. Do not say, Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So, Father, now we come uh, and we look again at this passage of yours in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We ask you that uh, you would teach us 
and guide us. Show us things that are strange in a lot of ways to us, but show us the, the meaning of it in that time and the meaning for it in our life today. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So it's a profound thing that we see here in, in John chapter 4, the, the, the woman being excited about what she has discovered with this man at the well going into town and then all of these people coming out to see Jesus and we even just read that many believed in his name. Yet back in the first chapter, the apostle had already made it clear to us in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He goes to Jerusalem, remember there where he was at the temple and then with Nicodemus and didn't get such a warm welcome there. Nicodemus had a lot of uh, misunderstanding and if there was anyone that was able to connect the dots and to understand what Jesus was saying, it would be Nicodemus, the Old Testament scholar. But then he comes to Samaria sees this woman, meets this woman, and then she goes testifies to the town and there's all of this uh, excitement and people coming. It, it's a precursor. It's showing us how the message of the gospel is available for the Gentiles as well as the Jews and that the Gentiles respond and the Jews are having quite a lot of resistance, quite a lot of resistance. I thought it might help us to see some mapping of where we are in this account in chapter 4. So here the Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. You'll see the Dead Sea and that body of water there up the Jordan River is the Sea of Galilee. You see those. Then you see the some mountains there that are, are identified. Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. That's the area in which where Jesus is and where the woman is as well. That region between Galilee and Jerusalem. Remember last week we thought about the idea that people from Jerusalem really choose, didn't want to go through Samaria because there's just this great hatred and animosity between these people. But there's uh, Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And a little closer look helps us to see that uh, there's Shechem is mentioned uh, in regards to this area, this town of Shechem. Right there is Jacob's well, where the woman is at the well, and Jesus meets her. We'll see Mount Gerizim here. There's Mount Ebal over there at the top. Joseph's tomb, very sacred place there. And uh, so that helps us see there at the well, Jacob's well. So when she's talking about this mountain, you say Jerusalem, our fathers say this mountain, the mountain is right there. That's in her mind and what she's seeing. This is just a different perspective. Uh, Shechem, then there's these two mountains on either side that are very important to the Samaritans, to the Jews actually as well, but especially the Samaritans, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So that again helps us just for some context. And what I thought we would do is we begin uh, again for some context, just turning in our Bibles to see what's 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 in the picture with the woman as she talks 
to Jesus. So let's just turn into our Bibles in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We'll, we'll begin there in Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. And at chapter 3, verses 13, 14, and 15. Exodus chapter 3, 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say, to, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God identifies himself as I am. In the Gospel of John, we see the I am statements of Jesus, and that's not an accident for the Apostle John. I am. In fact, we'll look a little closer at that here in a few moments. I, who am speaking to you, am He. I am. So it's a, it's a declaration by the Apostle in writing this. More importantly, Jesus, He is God, the I am. Okay, if we turn back to Genesis, let's just take a, a quick sweep here. Genesis chapter 12, just to help us grab some context on these mountains and this location. Genesis chapter 12, and we'll read, start at verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, Okay, so Abram, Abraham, a ah, very important place because he shows up at Shechem. To the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. So anyway, there in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. Where? The land of Shechem, where Shechem is. Okay. Let's look at Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. Just turning forward in our, our Bibles. Genesis chapter 33. Let's look at verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Amor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar 
and called it El Elohim, Israel. Very important place. Jacob is there and set up an altar. All right, let's try Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Just a sweeping look here. What's at stake at this well? Deuteronomy 18, 18. Fifteen, we'll start. The Lord your God, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. Verse 18. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. So God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. And that prophet is going to explain the things of God. So this woman at the well says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Remember from last week, the Samaritans took the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as their scriptures. They did not embrace the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't embrace the prophets or the history books or poetry. Or, they didn't embrace that. So when they're looking for Messiah, they're looking for one coming up uh, like Moses, uh, a Moses type of deliverer. They don't have all of the King David and Isaiah and Jeremiah that's pointing towards a day when God will raise up the Messiah. And they don't have the scriptures that point to the uh, place of Jerusalem available, but those people deny those scriptures. Uh, just turning back just a little bit there in verse uh, chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 11. Just gaining some context for this very important setting in which Jesus is with this woman. Chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, and let's look at verse, just 29, verse 29. There's the whole context there before and after. Verse 29, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on on Mount Ebal. So that's being explained there on, on what is to take place on these, the, excuse me, these mountains. Okay, moving forward, Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Really? It's, uh, you probably have a chapter, a section heading in verse 9, Curses from Mount Ebal. And I'll read a portion of this, starting in verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, 
Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command to you. So, that day, verse 11, Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. They're going to stand on that mountain we see in the overhead. And they're going to announce the blessing of God to these people. And then, verse 13, And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, and then there's a long list of curses there, curses. <laughs> I won't go through all of those, but it, it will be fruitful for us in our own private study to consider those curses. And it will help us to see that Jesus is meeting this woman at the well. They're looking in their context. They're looking. There are these mountains. On this one, evil, the curses of the Lord if for disobedience, those would be announced. So she comes to Jesus and, and she says, well, our fathers say to worship on this mountain, but you Jews say Jerusalem. You can see the importance of that. They're not likely to let go of this idea that, that this mountain is very, very important in their religious atmosphere. Okay. One more. Joshua chapter 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, and it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, and then it continues, and it continues on. Verse 33, And all Israel, sojourner as well as native, born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant to the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. Okay, just some context. What's in that woman's mind? She may have been a sinner, certainly was a sinner, and had lived a lifestyle that was not pleasing to the religious folk of her area, would not have been pleasing in the sight of the Lord, but she knew enough about their tradition to know something. If a prophet's going to show up, she's, she's got some theology she'd like to get cleared up. This animosity between the Jews and the Israel, Israelites and the people in Jerusalem, and now there's this animosity with the, the people in, in Samaria. Remember, we we looked last week at how both groups defiled the other's temple. The, the, the Jews went north and they destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. And then there's another time that recently just... The Samaritans went into Jerusalem and scattered bones 
on the grounds of the temple. Great defilement. And so there's this, this anger that has been built up. So we come to this idea that in Samaria, Samaria Jesus first announces, he first openly reveals that, that he's the Messiah. Uh, he says in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I do speak to you and he. Now with the context, we realize that those words have a great meaning. I who speak to you am he. We could just take out that explanatory part. I am he. And by the way, the he is not in the original. It's supplied so that we can understand as we read this passage. I who speak to you am. That's what it really says. I who speak to you am. Well, she might not have understood that, but she, she might have had a taste of it. Certainly the leaders, religious leaders, the elders from Shechem coming out to see Jesus, they would have understand that, that kind of language. But here, the, the shocking thing is that Jesus is revealing himself for the first time openly that he is the Messiah. The, 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 the one who discloses, the one who reveals God. And he's doing it, why it's so shocking, is he's doing it not among his own people. He's doing it among those that have been very hostile to the people of God. They've, they've been very hostile to the ancestry of Jesus. So these Samaritans and the Jews, they still have the patriarchs, of course, as we've just seen. We have the patriarchs in their lineage, but they don't have the other kind of uh, lineage that we'll think about here in, in a moment. In John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59, we read this. Your father Abraham rejoiced, Jesus speaking. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before, Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We'll see in chapter 8. They knew very well what he, those, those little words that may not have such a great impact to us today, but they knew at that time very well what he was saying before Abraham was, I am. They wanted to stone him and wanted to kill him for it. So Jesus is interacting with this woman. Not only does he say that, but he's explaining something to her that no one could know unless they're, they're divine, unless they, they have omniscience. She, she is being, she's seeing in this man his explanation of her life. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right, you have five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. How does he know that? How could he know that? No, he's, he's a Jew. He, he's not from around here. How does he know that about me? And the Apostle John wants us to know, wants us to see that that kind of knowledge, that kind of omniscience can only come from God. So Jesus and his message purposefully breaks ethnic, cultural, and religious stereotypes and boundaries. We thought at quite a length last week about this. These boundaries that are in place between Samaria and the, the, the Jews, Jesus breaks that. 
and the, the way that those differences and those barriers are, are broken, those stereotypes are broken, are in Jesus, and he sets us here, the classic example. Really, there's only two kinds of people, not Samaritan or Jew. It's guilty sinner or forgiven sinner. And that's what's on the mind. That's what concerns Jesus. That's what concerns the apostle at this, this point. Not whether they're a Greek or what, whether they're a Jew or what, whether they're a Samaritan or wherever they're from. It's have, have they come, are they forgiven of their sin? Have they come to know Christ? So Jesus breaks these barriers. There's this awakening that takes place. A, awakening, a breakthrough that takes place. We look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. It's interesting to think that she could have taken that situation and say, Okay, I'll go get him later. If she wanted to get out of the situation that she's in, She's obviously all this living water conversation, all this living water talk. She's talking with someone that's unique, some, someone that's different. Go get your husband, and she's out there with it. I have no husband. And now he unfolds it that, uh, about her situation with these men. And later, she goes to the town and tells them, gives a witness, gives a testimony that this Jesus, this Messiah, told all that she had done it's a, presumably a reference to her sinful lifestyle and their disappointments and the pain in her life either through divorce or through death with the, with these men living with one now that's not her husband he not all things and every little detail everything that she did in her life but these profound issues that caused separation for her between her and the people in her community and separation between her and God. He told me all. He told me everything. So there's this awakening and a personal breakthrough. And it comes from being honest with Jesus about our sin. And we're seeing with her that she has this breakthrough. He comes and sits at the well. And we thought about it last week. But again, briefly, she's there in the middle of the day. She's isolated in some way. Hardworking, hot, reject, the picture rejected by her community. But she's got a breakthrough, we'll see later. She goes running into the town and, and she gives a testimony. Don't we, don't we see that? He, she, she, the woman left her water jar, which means that she's leaving with some kind of excitement and she expects to return that very valuable water jar for her. She wouldn't just leave that behind, but she's going to go and going to return and she's very excited about something. There's some kind of breakthrough here. She's no longer just getting water for the day for her and, and her household. She goes into the town and she says to the people, in verse 28, she said to the people, who is she to be saying anything to the people? She's of no account in this culture, in this environment. Who, is, who does she think that she is coming to the elders at the gate or wherever they may have been, coming and announcing anything? Something has happened in her life. 
And it's not only that Jesus pointed out the pain in her life, it's that she didn't run from Jesus. She acknowledged, I have no husband. And there's some other dialogue. And as I, as I say, because he is telling her some things, and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She probably believes this is the Christ, but she's not in any kind of position to be telling any uh, people in the town, this is the Christ. Well, who are you to be announcing that? Could this be the Christ? She's coming there. There's this transformation that's taking place. This is this breakthrough. She's honest with Jesus, and Jesus is having this dialogue. He doesn't run from it. When we read the Scriptures and Jesus presses on us, we do well to have the dialogue. Let Him press on us. Let Him point out some things in our through His Word, the written Word, the living Word's written Word. He pointing out something. Don't run from it. Oh, oh, oh I don't like what this says. Shut the cover on it. And leave. No. Listen. Absorb it. Think about it. It's it, my situation. A person thinks in their mind, my situation, it has a lot of pain. It has a lot of loss. It has a lot of confusion. has a lot of disappointment. What's my contribution to that? And she, she just didn't run. She says, I have no husband. <clears throat> and Jesus comes back and teaches her something. In our life, if we want breakthrough, if we want an awakening in our life, we have to be at this place. We can't, we can't look at the Scriptures and see something that presses on us and don't really like that. There are a lot of places in the Scriptures that press on us and we don't really want to deal with it. We give lip service to it, but I mean apply it in our life. Let it press down. Let Him cheat. Let Him make us uncomfortable. Let God make us not sleep at night because our life needs to change. That's where the breakthrough changes. So she's faced with this thing. She doesn't pretend that she doesn't have a problem. She's honest. Well, we've already seen that this, this woman's excitement, the well woman, her excitement is really, it's, it's, it's contagious. It's captivating. Verse 39. Many Samaritans came from that town and believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So that statement is being repeated in verse 39. Nine, repeated from verse 25. He told me all that I ever did. She surely is coming to some kind of realization, as foggy as it might have been, that something is needed, something from God, some, some of this living water was needed in her life. But she's excited about it. She went back to the town, and it, it says that she's, she's proclaiming this and telling people about this, and so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay. So they're coming out, coming back to her. Somehow, God has touched her life, 
and she's excited about it. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of you that we have believed, that we believe, for we've heard these things ourselves. So they had an initial belief. They're coming to Jesus Christ because of her testimony and her excitement is so captivating. Just, just imagine, just imagine this woman tried to explain earlier how much of an outcast she is. How people just looking down upon her. Who do you think you are? We're not gonna, you can't collect water with us if in the mornings or in the evenings. And if you do try to do that, we're not gonna give you the silent treatment. We're not going to talk with you. No, you cannot come and be a part of our group. And then we had the, 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 we see this picture, these these men in and out of her life that something painful surely has happened in her life, some rejection in that. But something has happened. This woman, can't you picture her carrying a water jar? Going all the way out to the well. What drudgery in the heat of the day. Probably like, probably, probably like a, a week in July in California. In the heat of the, in the, heat of the day, she drudges, goes out there with her water jar. Something happened to her and she's excited. She's excited about what she's discovered with Jesus and what he's pointed out to her. Sir, I perceive you could be a prophet. And she has somehow been exposed to what we just read. Someday, someone will come in the likeness of Moses and explain all things to us. Sir, I perceive this about you. And she's going back to town. Left her water jar behind, which means she's in a hurry. She went back to town. So she, she's excited in this way. Why? Well, at the point of her sin, which brings pain in her life, surely, at the point of her sin, Jesus changes her. He changes her. She's excited about her encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. He's pretty wise talking about all this worship Pretty wise about that living water, it sounds like. And then he uses that language, I am. Whatever all the things were said, we see a change in her demeanor, her attitude, because she met the Lord. So let me ask you a question. What excites you about Jesus? That's what we're left with, or at least I'm left with. As I see her picture, asking myself, what am I excited about regarding Jesus? So I ask you, What excites you about Jesus?
anything? I mean, there's a set of doctrines that we should believe about Jesus. What excites you about Jesus? His perfection. Good for you. Perfection, holy, forgiveness, return, promised return. See what he's going to do next. See what he's going to do next. Thank you. His forgiveness. His forgiveness, right? See, we've got to, I come to you today with this idea. All of us. Me, starting with me, with you. We have got to come to terms with what excites us about Jesus. Look, look how the town responded. Why? Because she's has theological brilliance <laughs> because she has risen so high in the ranks of religion in the town, in Shechem, because she knows the ins and outs of the details of Mount Gerizim or the Pentateuch. <laughs> what really stirs people up is she's excited about Jesus. He's done something for her. It's not theoretical about it. This is, I, I, I like this worldview over this worldview. We need some people today being excited about Jesus. About what's he doing in your life today when you came to Jesus in faith? What was it that excited you about Jesus? Anything? Because if he didn't excite you about anything, why Jesus and not some other worldview, some other religion? What good is Jesus? Because it's the right doctrine. She's had this awakening. She's had a breakthrough in her, her life. And there's a lot unsaid in the passage that's for sure. But one thing that we can know, one thing we can see about her is that she is excited about Jesus. He's changed her life and she's just, she can't contain it. She wants to tell other people. So I have to ask myself as a preacher, I have to ask myself, is there anything about Jesus that excites me in my, in my life right now? And you mentioned some very, very good points right here in this, this room. And for you, for each of us, there'll be something different that really excites you about who Jesus is. And that's going to carry you through some very difficult days. What, you think just the whole community just all of a sudden says, Oh, right, yeah, we just, she's cool. Yeah, the woman at the well, we just forget about all that. Come on over to the dinner party. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. They're not... Uh. She, she's going to have some difficult day, but this, she's going to cling to Jesus. It's gonna, she's going to hold on to it. So I'm asking you today, go back to when you, you were converted and just think about yeah, think about your first love. What was it that excited you about Jesus? And then think today, it could change.
change over time. Some things today could be different. What excites you about Jesus? You expect other people to be excited? What is the right evangelism method? Should I use the four spiritual laws? Should I use John 3.16? Maybe the faith method. One, two, three, four, five. What method? I'll tell you one. Excitement. Excitement about Jesus. Because, well, how much drudgery? Okay, you went through the, five, the four spiritual laws, but I don't see you excited about anything. What? I don't. Okay. I'm supposed to believe what you believe. She comes in. Whole town comes back. She's excited about Jesus. Being accepted might be one. I thought about that a few moments ago during communion. Well, there's conviction, personal conviction. That these people, they, they come, in verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of you because what you said that we believe. But we've heard for ourselves and we've heard for ourselves and we've, we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. How do we hear from Jesus today? Through the Scriptures, His Word, allowing Him to speak, speak to us, perhaps not audibly, surely not audibly in most situations, but still impressing upon our hearts, speaking to us internally, and speaking to us and so that we know we have heard for ourselves. These people are coming. They're being attracted to Jesus. There's a belief coming from the town, coming out to where He is because of her testimony. But they themselves have encountered Jesus. How have we, how have you encountered Jesus? If you've encountered Jesus, there's probably something exciting about Him in your life. So, some place in, in your life. There's the forgiveness and maybe the healing of pain and perhaps a picture of new life. But whatever the picture is, has excited you and there's conviction about who He is and this encounter with Him changes. This, this, this picture of it, who, what His nature is and His purposes and His demands, His commands, His promises. All of that personal conviction, it, it comes with this encounter. And we encounter Jesus through His Word. Through what we see of His life. Through His apostles. We're seeing today through the Apostle John. So He goes to those Jews in Jerusalem and doesn't get a very favorable welcome, for sure. Comes to Samaria, has people coming out from the fields, out into the fields, from the, the town. The disciples come back and they, they're really, they don't understand. At first he's talking to this woman and that's just out of line. And they don't understand all of that. And they're wondering, did someone bring him something to eat? Has anyone brought him something to eat? My food is to do the, the will of him who sent me, of course. Already, verse 36 Verse 35, he tells them to lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white from the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. There's, there's teamwork involved in what God is doing in the kingdom of heaven. There, there's not this isolation. It's not going to be just the, the disciples. Surely people have heard of John the Baptist. His reputation had spread about through the area. People surely had been talking about him. But 
more immediately, this woman had gone in a testimony and brought a testimony to the town. The people are coming and Jesus is teaching the disciples right here in this, in this particular moment, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. And he, he's teaching them this proverb, one sows and another reaps. There's partnership in the gospel. There's, people are going to lay the groundwork and others are going to, to reap from their efforts. And those efforts may have gone on decades, may have gone on centuries, may have gone on hours ago. But get groundwork being laid and not the competition. Maybe you've seen it. I have. Competition. A lot of competition in the religious realm in the 21st century. A lot of competition. And it's really about, if we're not careful, we'll fall off into that competitiveness, kind of like businesses competing with one another. And it's actually teamwork. Jesus wants, wants us to understand teamwork that's being involved. So, this greatest personal satisfaction. He says that he has work to be done. And he has a different kind of, of food. They were asking him to eat, but Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. One of the things the disciples will, will learn and we learn as well is that our great satisfaction in life will be the nourishment, the food, be the, the nourishment that comes from doing, serving God, living in obedience to God and accomplishing his will. Speaking up for, for Jesus, learning more about Jesus, absorbing more of the truth of Jesus, and then sharing that with other people, helping to advance the kingdom of God, worshiping God, lifting up the name of God, honoring God, all of those types of things, that kind of work, so much, so nourishing. So he's taking the opportunity with the disciples that come out. They wonder, did anyone bring him food? Uh, and he says, you know, my food is to do the will of my Father and accomplish His work. That's a, that's a good word for all disciples, all of us. The nourishment, the encouragement, the uplifting in our own soul, the purpose in our life. Find, finding that purpose, whatever stage of life we might be in, finding that, finding that nourishment, that strengthening, knowing that Doing the will of God somehow, supernaturally, God nourishes us. Doesn't mean that we don't eat at all and, 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 and have no food in our life at all. But the priority is not there because the spiritual nourishment is so much greater. So, so much more important to us. Then he talks, of course, about this idea of worship. Teaching the disciples. Teaching the woman. She has the idea that he's a prophet and that uh, there's this confusion about what do you say, Jesus, about Jerusalem? What do you say about here at Mount Gerizim, Shechem? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. If you worship what you do not know, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
That is a tremendously scary phrase. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. You have insufficient information about God. You worship. You're in the practice of worship. But you're worshiping that you don't know. And they have the Pentateuch. They have the first five books of the Bible. It's not like they're adopting the Scriptures from some far off land somewhere. They have the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus says, you're worshiping what you do not know. How scary is it to go through life and to, to worship and be devoted and dedicated? And these people were devoted and dedicated. Samaritans are, are, were that way and are that way. Devoted. But to not know the truth of who God is. So you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. We, Jesus is identifying with those in Jerusalem. He's identifying himself with the Jews. We worship what we know for salvation is of the, the Jews. Not merely, but through Jesus, salvation being of the Jews, the blood, you know, Jesus, the, the Messiah coming there. But the revelation of God from that whole Old Testament, the whole Old Covenant, that picture, that all that revelation coming. Salvation is from that picture. God is disclosing this. So this, this emotion, this heartfelt expression that we even see in the woman, but it's worship is energized by the Spirit of God. This expression, what worship is, being an expression. And I included some definition there for you in your listening guide and in Romans 12 as as well but there's some emotion involved with it and there's there's truth from worshiping from head and from heart emotion and sometimes that, that's lost for the sake of truth and then sometimes the truth is lost for the sake of the heart those who worship God will worship in spirit and in, in truth well that truth is centered on Jesus Jesus is the truth he says I am the way the truth and the life, worshiping God the Father through Jesus, through that truth, worshiping God, it'll be neither on this mountain or this mountain. God is spirit. It's not talking about the, 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 the makeup of who God is. That's how God deals with people. He's, he's spirit. You know, in 1 John, the apostle says that, that God is light. What well, does it just mean? Light, as in light. Here in the room, that's how God deals with people. He illumines their mind, light. He shows light in, in, in the darkness. He says, God is love. Well, that's just not mean that God is some idea of love. That's how God deals with the world, so, interacts with the world, interacts with human beings. So God is spirit. God interacts with human beings by spirit. And our spirit is unable to interact with God unless we are, chapter 3, born again. Then we can, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must, that's a divine must, must worship in spirit and in truth. So, so this this plane that God is on working with people must worship Him in that way. But there is that emotion 
that we see in this woman as she goes to the crowd and she, she sees these people and tells them about Jesus. And it's a, and an emotion. You've seen people be emotional in worship services for sure. I'm, I'm imagining that you have in some way. It, it's not an abandonment of our intellect. I say it goes back to what excites you about Jesus? Worshiping in spirit, a piece of that is what excites you about Jesus? Because when we come to worship in spirit and in truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, the truth of the package that we see with Jesus, that truth, but that in spirit, that emotion, what excites you about Jesus? And if we see worshiping in spirit that way, we can turn down the amplifiers. You don't have to say a thing. There can be utter silence. You're worshiping in spirit. Excite about who God is. What God has done for you. Profound appreciation. What is He doing for you this week? What is He doing? What is He going to do with you? What has He done for you? But what is He doing for you this week? What excites you? And you don't need to say a word. Or you can turn it really up high and you can sing all you want to. Make all the noise you want to. But that does not equate to worshiping in spirit. It could, but not necessarily. We've just had a spirit-filled time of worship. And nobody could really tell you what excites them about Jesus or what they love about Jesus and what profound appreciation they have for Jesus and how they're devoted to Him today for what He's doing for them today in the future and in the past. Profound, this heartfelt expression. I'll leave us with this today. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son who, who He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. Goes on to talk about Him being the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, being very God Himself. Truth in Jesus. So Jesus comes to this woman and the community gets stirred up because she got stirred up. There's some truths there about worship that He unveils to her. And let's pray that His Spirit would stir our souls this week. Stir mine, perhaps yours, this week. Have greater appreciation, greater love, more profound devotion to Jesus because of what He's doing in our life today.